0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, David Gottlieb. The rabbinic sages of the Tanaitic era were fixated on memory and terrified of forgetfulness. In promulgating their own interpretations of Jewish law, the Tanaim not only took seriously Moses' admonitions to remember and not forget, They painstakingly constructed a system of laws that recognized and helped create and enhance a powerful and dynamic memory form. The rabbis also knew, however, that people are fallible and they're going to forget. To try to ensure communal coherence within the embrace of the covenant in the face of the loss of a cultic center, the rabbis built a system of legal promulgation and interpretation that anticipated forgetting and devised ways for confronting, correcting, and mitigating damage from it. In her latest work, Fractured Tablets, Forgetfulness and Fallibility in Late Ancient Rabbinic Culture, Professor Mira Bauberg explores and examines how the Tanaitic sages not only understood and approached the problem of forgetting, but how they, in essence, created that problem and positioned themselves as the specialists who could solve it. Mira Bauberg is Professor of History and David Goodblatt Endowed Chair in Ancient Jewish Civilization at the University of California at San Diego, and she joins me today to speak about her work. Professor Balberg, welcome. Thank you. So wonderful to be here. Thank you. Please first tell us a little bit, if you will, about the focus of your scholarship and how it led you to uh, the subject of forgetfulness in late antiquity.
1: Uh, I would love to do that. So I am uh, a scholar of generally of ancient Judaism with a focus on uh, the emergence and development of rabbinic Judaism. And Over the years, the thing that has fascinated me the most was the emergence of what we call halacha, that uh, system that basically defines every single aspect of the everyday of the Jewish believer practitioner as the rabbis envisioned that practitioner. And that hasn't always been there. The idea that every part of everyday life has some kind of a regulating principle from the moment you get up in the morning to the the moment you go uh, to sleep at night, is a a pretty new idea. It's a rabbinic notion. And this has been the kind of uh, thing that has fascinated me the most. I looked at various aspects. I looked at ideas of purity. I looked at sacrifice, uh, various practices that are sort of based in biblical religion, but then the rabbis give them new interpretations. Um, And the question that really fascinated me the most was, what does it mean to be a rabbinic subject? What is the psychology if we could call it that, of the kind of person that the rabbis are trying to create. How does this person need to be thinking about themselves, about the world, about their engagement with other people? So uh, this has kind of been the general focus. And uh, in my work, especially on, on you know, purity and sacrifice on these you know, very intense, demanding ritual aspects, um, it seemed like a big component of what the rabbis were demanding of their practitioners was perfection. Everything had a right way of doing it. And, you know, uh, certainly in something like sacrifice, you make a mistake. The sacrifice is not valid. You have to go and you have to do it again. And at the same time, while there seems to be such a high demand for perfection and for correct performance, in almost every page of, you know, the, rabbin, the early rabbinic legal codes, if we could call it that, the main preoccupation is with accidents and mistakes Interesting. and forgetfulness. And so I sort of said to myself, you know, at some point I need to be looking at why is it that there's such requirements for excelling in this practice? And yet the overwhelming assumption is you're going to get it wrong. That's okay. Here's how we're going to work if you're going to get it wrong. So that's what led me to thinking of mistakes and accidents. And that specifically. The angle of forgetfulness happened because I, you know, for a while, I took a little bit of break from rabbinic law, which was the main thing I did, and collaborated with my good friend, Professor Chai Weiss, scholar of literature, uh, to work on a book on stories of old age in rabbinic texts. It was sort of a you know different part of the literature and it was a lot of fun. But um, the issue of old age brought up the the problem or the concern of forgetfulness uh, and memory loss in a significant way so then the focus on forgetfulness is a particular way of getting things wrong and how can that be corrected kind of came to the fore
0: it's so interesting and i i it reminds me uh not that i'm forgetting that there's a so much scholarship on jewish memory and i'm guilty of producing some of it you know it makes me want to ask is is forgetting simply the obverse or the opposite of memory? Or in the Tana'itic conception, is it something more complex and more troublesome? And what do so what do remembering and forgetting actually mean to the Tana'itic rabbis?
1: This is a, a wonderful question. And yes, you know... Um, Whenever I say that I work on memory, the first thing people assume is that it's historical memory mm-hmm. or what we would call collective memory. And that is indeed a huge focus of, you know, we could say Jews in general and scholarship on Judaism in particular, because uh, yes, there is this you know major injunction, Zahor, right? Remember. And uh this is a tradition that is based very heavily on memory and uh of past events of, you know, the nation's uh, forming, formative stories. Um, So my book is really almost not, well, not almost, it is not at all about historical memory. Uh, There's fantastic work that have been done on that. Um, My concern in the book is really memory as an everyday function. And everything we do in our everyday life is based on memory from you know, the simplest elements of the vocabulary we use and the places we go to and, the you know, how we do the most you know menial tasks like brushing our teeth or whatever. Um, in the rabbinic, the Tanaitic uh, way of looking at the world, there's different kinds of memory that you need on a daily basis in order to function in, you know, this very demanding legal system. One is what is known as um, episodic memory, which means you need to remember where you went, what you did, whom you interacted with. Basically, you need to remember your experiences because a lot of the halachic decision-making is based on sort of discerning the history of something. So you need to know, for example, for uh, the sake of um, maintaining your ritual purity, whether you encountered an object that could have, or a person that could have made you impure. You need to know... um, for purposes of you know, legal functioning, did you pay a loan or was a a, a debt paid to you? You need to know um, whether, for example, if you made a vow, did you keep the vow or did you forget the thing? you? It's a, a day of fast. Did you remember to keep the fast or did you forget and you know, accidentally drink or things like that? Um, another aspect of memory is what we call prospective memory, which is me- remembering the tasks that you need to perform. So. You need to remember that, for example, a particular holiday is coming and you need to prepare for it. You need to uh remember that you have to uh you know, like do the air roof as we call it, you know, the preparation for the Sabbath and where you'll be allowed to go and not to go. There's also things that you have to remember to avoid doing. Again, we'll take the example of a fast or things like that. So tasks that need to be kept up with. And of course, you need to remember a lot of rules and laws
0: so I think what you're driving toward here though is that there's so much to remember it's impossible
1: it is and it's uh it's two kinds of impossible i would say one is that um certainly for somebody who is new to the to the program if we could call it that um knowing not only something like, you know, okay, on the Sabbath, I'm supposed to do this and this and on the holiday of Sukkot, I'm supposed to do this and this. But what do I do when Sukkot and the Sabbath actually overlap? And then there's like a whole new set of, you know, what takes precedence? Or I need to remember to say this blessing over this kind of, you know, kind of food and this blessing over this kind of food and actually what goes first whenever I'm eating both of those things. So yeah, there's a lot of memory of just details that you need to kind of master but there's also another kind of memory which is sometimes you can be so used to the system you're so practiced that actually you don't remember because you're kind of on autopilot so people who are like for example orthodox practitioners will often say like i don't remember if i actually prayed today because like i pray every day all my life three times a day and it's so ingrained that i did i did i pray did i not pray Um, And it's almost like that, like, did I did I lock the door when I leave the house? It's that kind of like you're you're not really reporting to yourself because you're used to it. So, yes, there's much to remember and it could be difficult to remember both because you're new to this or because it's actually so habitual that you are not keeping
0: track. So for the rabbis, then the memory is kind of a schlepping forward. Of all a huge matrix of all sorts, a spreadsheet, if you will, of all sorts of different things that you need to do under different circumstances, and forgetting is inevitable. In fact, in your book, and this is something I had never really known or focused on, you point out that the fear of forgetting goes back to Moses, and the rabbis pin on Moses the sort of uh, imputation that he's if you will a master forgetter uh does the genealogy of this fear of forgetting go back to him and how is that
1: okay it's a a great question so um the book of deuteronomy which is essentially the farewell speech of moses from his people is absolutely obsessed with forgetfulness yes um the concern that you will forget, you will forget, you will get into that promised land and you know you will live a comfortable life and you will forget everything recurs over and over and over and over again. In the but the let's say what the forgetting refers to is a little bit different. What Moses seems to be very concerned about is that people will forget God and specifically what God has done for them, that God has taken them out of Egypt, that God has, you know, led them in the in the wilderness and all of this. And that in turn will lead toward forgetting all the commandments, forgetting all the laws, forgetting the covenant, and so on. So it's sort of kind of a big all or nothing game. You know, you will forget God and then you'll forget everything. And that is something that we see, you know, beginning in Moses. It recurs then in the prophets, you know, in Samuel, in uh, Jeremiah, to some extent, and we see some of it in what we call the Second Temple literature, the literature composed by, you know, the different uh, sects in, uh, you know, the Second Temple period. But in those texts, it usually sort of maps onto an us and them kind of thing. So the the sect, for example, the Dead Sea, the, the group that produced the Dead Sea Scroll would say, well, we remember God, and we remember the covenant, but you, the other group, you forgot. The rabbit's concern is different. They actually do not seem to be very concerned that people will forget God or forget, you know, the the covenant or the exodus or things like that. Their concern is on two different levels. One of them is really the concern with those little everyday tidbits. And that is very different because sometimes, as I said, the forgetfulness can actually not be a result of carelessness or, you know, lack of investment, but exactly the opposite. You are so, for example, you're so used to praying that you will forget to pray because you were not thinking about it.
0: And it's not um, so much the your consciousness wasn't on the prayer. That's not the primary concern. The concern was, did you enact it? Did you embody it? Did you do it? Exactly.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, And so the tone is very different. It's almost like we're expecting that this will happen because as you said, there's so much to forget. The other thing the rabbis are concerned with is about learning. And we're talking about a world in which learning is through repetition. Learning is, you know, learning by heart most of the time. And to be a rabbinic disciple means a lot of repetition, a lot of internalization, very big chunks of text. And that also leads to forgetfulness, which is its own practice and its own concern, but it's definitely moving away from the direction of, oh, you rebellious people, Like, as soon as you'll get into the land, you will forget all the goods that your Lord has done for you. That is not the story. The story is like, you're human. The capacity of the human memory is limited. How do we deal with that?
0: That's a great, great observation. I want to go back to this, and I alluded to it in in the introduction. You're talking about a real fear of cognitive overload in the attempt to master all the vast and complex you know, corpus of rabbinic law and the textual interpretation from which it springs, uh, is this why the rabbis have chosen to focus on forgetfulness? In other words, were they, in effect, creating demand for their cure for forgetfulness by prescribing unrelenting immersion in text did they create the demand for their own services is that and and how did they arrive at that does your has your research shown you any answer to that question
1: okay so i'll just provide a little bit of uh, a little bit of background for that when i started asking myself you know okay why is this preoccupation with forgetfulness that we haven't seen before um my first answer to myself was, well, you know, it is a system that requires constant memory, which the rabbis have developed to some extent because of this, like, ever-growing expansion and development. And, you know, um, everything that perhaps in the biblical law is rather simple becomes so complex with so many sub clauses. So yes, of course they're concerned with, you know, memory because there's, there's so much to remember. But then I said to myself, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. It's um, the, the fact that it is so complicated is a choice. It doesn't have we don't have to necessarily assume that the inevitable trajectory of Jewish law was to get to those levels of elaboration and detail. I mean, um, certainly Jews have lived for generations before the rabbis without that excruciating detail and Jules still live today you yes, know without do. that kind of uh okay. excruciating detail. so it was a choice um and I think the choice has some um some history to it um I wouldn't be as cynical as to say you know the rabbis are making themselves necessary um I don't think that was the primary purpose of this. I don't think it was sort of like, all right, let's, you know, create a system that is so complicated that they absolutely need us. Although right. that was absolutely the result of this. Um, I would say that the historical development, as I see it, is a little bit different, which is um, that the, what we call rabbinic Judaism actually emerged of what we could call a sect. Um, and by sect, I mean a small self-selecting, elitist group that is essentially differentiating itself from everyone else by adopting a more rigorous and more demanding lifestyle. And puts emphasis on things like eating meals together in a state of purity, being very particular about um, who you're interacting with and how, you know, being very pious about certain monetary practices, things like that. And there were many groups like that in the Second Temple period. Um, What is happening with the rabbis is that at some point, because of a range of historical developments, this group is expanding and saying, okay, the thing that worked for us is the small, elite, very selective group of hardcore people. That's what we're going to be considering Judaism from now on. It's for everyone. And once you do that, you're playing this double game of, I still want it to be very elitist, but I also want it to be inclusive. And this, when you create that model of inclusive elitism and say, these are very, very high standards, and you have to be completely committed to them and think about them most of your day, but also this is for everyone and not just for the people who sign on to this. This is what creates a situation where um, the some group of people who know how to navigate the system becomes very necessary. And that's how the rabbis, I think, begin to make the case for themselves as the experts that are supposed to lead the people throughout this new endeavor, whether they're ac- they actually were, is a big question. Ah. So one of the biggest questions in scholarship is, are the rabbis just imagining that other Jews are like, yes, you're, you're showing the way we're following your pattern or why did they actually have that power? Nobody knows how to we answer that. We don't
0: really know, but inclusive elitism is a very interesting, uh, Uh, approach to religious practice. And as you point out, it's not entirely unique, but one thing that you do point out that is unique is that in Leviticus 4 and 5, there are a series of ritual instructions uh, offering a series of prescribed sacrificial offerings for inadvertent expenses, and of course, forgetting is inadvertent unless we're talking about blotting out as with Amalek, which is really not forgetting. It's something else entirely. But here, but but we don't see that anywhere else in the ancient Near East, do we? We see sacrifices for ritual moments and prescribed situations and relationships, but inadvertence is not one of them. How does the introduction of inadvertence as a type of sin help the rabbis create or extend what might be called... Uh, for lack of a better term, a productive religious anxiety.
1: Yes. Uh, so that is really a, a fascinating, we could say, precedent that in which the rabbis are taking their cue from, from the Pentateuch, from the, the Torah. Um, so, of course, various religions in the ancient Near East and beyond that have sacrificial practices that are meant to uh, make up for violations of the law or you know um, contamination or things like that Mm -hmm. very interestingly as you said in Leviticus 4 and 5 we find the idea of uh, inadvertent transgressions and there are these um, uh, sacrifices called sin offering and guilt offering used for those purposes and what those sacrifices essentially create they really echo what I said before they're introduced in the biblical storyline, in the priestly storyline, uh, in the course of all those new laws that Moses is giving to the people. And it's as though it says, like, okay, you're getting all these new laws. It's a lot. And mistakes are going to happen. And we have a way of dealing with those mistakes and those, the, the, Avenues for fixing those mistakes heavily depend on the priest, on that elite group that is going to mediate between the people and God. Um, and we are we're going to be able to, to fix them. And however, sins that are committed intentionally are effectively unforgivable. They're uh for well, not for all of them, but for most of them. Uh, the punishment would be extirpation essentially you're going to be removed
0: from is the that what we call um biadrama is that like with exactly. a high hand that kind of I'm gonna do it
1: exactly and shove it flagrantly and okay.
0: yeah right yeah yeah so then that exactly. is being then you're cut off. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Um so the difference or the distinction between intentional of crime or transgression and unintentional is something, of course, that we see in legal systems even in antiquity. That is not a new idea. But the idea of sacrificial practices, ritual practices that distinguish between those things, that's very new. Because to make a a kind of a big generalization, the gods in antiquity do not really care whether you did things intentionally or not. The gods need to get what they deserve which is you know the sacrifices they're owed the maintenance of their temples as that is owed they're not interested in those questions of you know what were you thinking it's the interesting intersection because you know the god of the hebrew bible is both a legislator of what is presumably you know an ethical system and also a deity that is owed uh you know purity and sacrifices and all of that and that intersection, I think, leads to the idea that sacrifices can be uh, utilized differently in cases of intention and lack of intention. And yes, you're absolutely right that that lays the ground for this idea of forgetfulness as an inadvertent way of not um, keeping up with the law that requires its own mode of uh, dealing.
0: I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, how the temple and the precincts of the temple and the requirement for purity within the precincts enter into the equation of rabbinic and especially Tanaedic thought. It is has always been fascinating to me as a student of memory that there is a great fear of forgetting the temple. And so, so much of the architecture of temple sacrifice and worship is conveyed into the rabbinic system. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: That's a big challenge because that's something I could talk about for two hours. Okay. Uh, let's say just...
0: two and a half minutes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I think that one of kind of my my uh, biggest soapboxes is uh in my own scholarship is the centrality of the temple in the rabbinic edifice and the rabbinic way of thinking. Because there is a paradigm in, you know, Jewish history, which is profoundly misguided, I think, which is, you know, there was a temple, the temple was the center of religious life, then it was destroyed, then came the rabbis, and the rabbis created a system of being Jewish that does not depend on the temple. This is like a textbook kind of thing. And it is, while I understand how it was created, and it is true, historically, the rabbis operated in a world without a temple, but I will say very kind of forcefully that if you will read at least the early Tanaitic text, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Tanaitic Midrashim, you will not know that there is no temple. That's right. Or, you know, maybe you will find two or three... It's as if it
0: effect. were still there, physically. It is
1: absolutely as yeah. though it is still there. And the world is set with the idea that the temple is a vital part of the correct function of the world, the correct function of religion. Um, I will also say it makes sense that it's not just an illusion or a utopia. In the ancient world, temples were destroyed and rebuilt all the time. It makes sense to me that, you know, rabbis who lived in the second century, okay, yes, the temple was destroyed for 30 years, 50 years. I would assume that they thought it would happen, you know, in their own lifetime. It's not from our perspective where it was like, well, of course they already knew that that was the last that there was gonna be a Jewish temple. so yes, it is a very central facet of life, and more than that, it still provides the model for religious practice. Um, so when I mentioned earlier this idea of perfection, the temple is a realm in which mistakes are not tolerated. You know, it's it's a very sensitive space for any kind of infraction, any kind of error, and to some extent, the rabbis model that painstaking halachic system on the temple. So just like there's a right way to do this particular sacrificial process or this particular purifying process or, you know, prepare the bread for, you know, the, the weekly presentation and everything. There is a correct way to do everything, including, for example, declaring lost objects or um, initiating a fast in order to pray for rain. So the the detail, the painstaking detail of temple worship is sort of Uh, transferred to every aspect of life which also makes accidents and forgetting the central thing
0: interesting i want to ask you too about um the incessant routines of recitation and repetition you point out that it's the waging of a war against forgetfulness that can never be conclusively won and my question may um entice a little bit of sociological speculation so i hope you'll forgive me for that but how sure. do you see this all encompassing focus on memory and fear of forgetting and recitation and repetition and the performative aspect of all that how do you see it getting conveyed forward into jewish life today in other words what have been the lasting implications of this fear of forgetting in your view
1: oh that's fascinating um Specifically, recitation? or uh, Let's say
0: recitation. Yeah. Let's say recitation.
1: So I would say that um, the biggest element that I think has survived to this day and has a very significant impact is, uh, and I'm going to put it a little bit bluntly, the idea that if you do not actively study Torah, you are somehow not living Jewish life to its fullest. Mm-hmm. um that that notion of study and i'm going to say ritual study and what i mean by this is that the the centrality and uh, again i'll use a strong word fetishization of study in um in jewish culture is not just about like, okay, you need to know the content of these texts because the content will somehow enrich your life or make you, you know, more ethical or somehow nourish you. It's, you need to spend time with those texts as much as you can, whether or not this is actually meaningful to you. Wow. Um, And you have to be
0: seen doing it. Yes, yes. And you have to be
1: exactly and you have to be seen doing it and you have to do it in even if this is not you know inherently so um engaged with the content and you you do sometimes um see those situations where people will you know um some for example the the deaf yomi you know the Mm -hmm. daily talmud Mm -hmm. page that people study i'm going to say not all the all the the of the Talmud are equally fascinating,
0: I'm or to, equally. I have been going through Daf Yomi. I'm going yeah. to endorse that statement. I can now speak from experience.
1: Yes, right. So there are some times where you spend a good bit of time with a test, and it's like I don't even know that I understood this. I don't even know that this is something that I you don't know. It's like laws about how to build a mikveh. it's not really relevant for my life in any way, but there is this idea of like, I spent time with this text. Yeah. I had my like meaningful interaction, not because of the content, but because of the, uh, the emblem of what the text means. That is something that I think dates back to this idea that without that recitation, without that immersion of yourself in the text uh, and in the tradition, your life is somehow incomplete.
0: Very, very interesting. I wonder, and I, I did, I'm not sneaking up on you. I want our listeners to know that I asked you about this before. Yes. I would love you to lead us through one of the passages of rabbinic text that really speak to you on, and give us a great idea of the rabbinic perspective on forgetting. Would you do that?
1: I would love to do that. And uh, I, when you asked me that, I knew immediately what passage I was going to choose because in some ways that was the, I think, one of the passages from which the, this interest sparked this is a very short uh story that we find in uh the Tosefta which is a uh, Tanitic text from about the 3rd century and the Tosefta is sort of a complementary text to the Mishnah the main uh, the main legal corpus of the, of uh, that period so the Mishnah may, mentions a particular ruling that um uh, people should not be tilting a lamp when they are reading uh, on the sa- on the night of the sabbath the night between friday and uh, and saturday not because it's uh, forbidden to read but because uh, they used oil lamps back in the day and the problem is that you know it might get dark and you will want to read some more and when you know, you want to read and there's, uh, there's not enough light, you're going to take the lamp and you're going to tilt it, which basically means you're going to move it so that more oil will come to the wick and you'll have more light. The problem is this is akin to lighting fire on the Sabbath, which you're not allowed to do. So already in this ruling, we have this idea that you might forget. Because again, this human thing of, well, you're just used to the fact that when it's getting dark, you want more light, except you're going to forget it's the Sabbath. I'm not supposed to do it because it's kind of a natural habit. So in short, don't read on by the light of the lamp on the Sabbath. That's the, that's the rule. And then we have this very, very short story about uh, a rabbi who lived in the second century by the name of Rabbi Ishmael, who one night, presumably on the night of the Sabbath, uh, and he tells us that he did actually um, intend, well, he says that he intended to do this. He says... Uh, one time I was reading by the light of the lamp and I wanted to tilt it. I then said, how great are the words of the sages who said that one must not read during the night of the Sabbath by the light of the lamp. So a very seemingly like simple story where Abba says, yes, you know, I knew that that was a rule that you're not supposed to read by the light of the lamp on the Sabbath. But I did. It doesn't say why the Talmud, which is a later text, says that he thought it's okay, I'm a rabbi. I rem- I will know not to tilt the lamp. So he tells us that he was reading by the light of a lamp, which he was not supposed to do, and almost tilted it, and then said to himself, man, the rabbis are so smart. This is why they said never do it, because they assume that people will forget, just like I almost forgot. Um, And there's an interesting thing here that made the story interesting to me, because of course Rabbi Ishmael, as the name would imply, is himself a rabbi. And here he says, yeah, you know what, I am a rabbi, and I almost made exactly the mistake that the rabbi said that people will do, uh, that the people will, you know, Aaron, how great are the words of the sages? How lucky are we that we have such smart rabbis who know exactly you know, how pe- how people's minds work, how prone to error and forgetfulness we are. So um, I like that story because it really kind of captures in a very concise way the entire rabbinic approach to forgetfulness, which is that double, like everyone could forget, including the rabbis. And this is why we need the rabbis, capital R rabbis, who will tell us in exactly what ways we could forget. But uh, the thing even get, the, the story gets a little bit, better, as a matter of fact, toward the end, where um, we have another rabbi by the name of Rabbi Nathan showing up and says, you know, Rabbi Ishmael did forget and did did tilt the lamp. He didn't just almost tilt the lamp. He did tilt the lamp that night. And I know this because I looked at his personal notebook and I found a uh, a, a line there that says, I know Rabbi Ishmael Ben Elisha tilted the lamp on the Sabbath. When the temple is rebuilt, I will bring a sin offering, a fat sin offering. So um, then we have the other rabbi who's kind of giving you the inside baseball and saying, yeah, he's telling you that he almost tilted the lamp. He actually did. So if you think that because he's a rabbi, he's, you know, at the last minute, he will remember he won't. But the thing that makes Rabbi Ishmael different is he was a lot like, oh, oh unfortunately, I tilted the lamp, but he actually makes a comment of it and said like, when the temple will will be rebuilt, I will bring a sacrifice to atone for the fact that I violated the Sabbath. And that, in addition to the fact that it's a little bit amusing, I think is is capturing two things. First of all, um, the fact that for the rabbis, the thing that mattered was not that you won't forget, it was that you will fix it later uh, afterwards that you will respond to your forgetfulness in the right way, that you will take responsibility for that and that you will continue on to rectify to the extent that you can. And the second thing following on what we just talked about, the centrality of the temple in all of that, that the temple is still the horizon against which all of this rabbinic edifice is built. So I think that story. Very, kind very
0: of fascinating. So much things. occurs to me in that reading. For one thing, in that story, which you which you outlined beautifully, one is that there are stages to forgetting, and mm-hmm. that there's a performative kind of off ramp at each stage of forgetting. You can say, "Oh, I was I forgot that I wasn't supposed to read by the light of the lamp," or you could say, "Oh, I forgot that I wasn't supposed to tilt the lamp." And then, yeah. if all that fails, you can say, "I will bring an offering," yes. which one can read either cynically or wholeheartedly. I mean, it works on multiple levels as the rabbis often do. Yes. He knows he's not supposed to be reading by the light of the lamp, but the rabbis of this era were reading all the time. It was yeah. in a way a competitive industry mm-hmm. and they had to keep up. And so he is showing them not only how great they are when he says how great are the words of the sages, he is showing how great he is that he Absolutely. Knows all of this and that there is an, an almost like there's almost a deliberate forgetting, but there's a a statement, potentially sincere, that it will be made right when, when the time yes. comes. So it almost has like an eschatological component to it. At the end, all will be made right.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I agree that it could be read cynically as well as earnestly. And I think the earnestness is really this idea of, well, you know, at the end, this is this is what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the construction of the temple, at which point we will be able to, you know, remedy our mistakes. Or you could also read a little bit of cynically, which is to say, like to say when the temple will be rebuilt is like saying, yeah, OK, you know, what can I do?
0: There's no temple. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday.
1: Yeah, that's exactly.
0: Finally, yeah. can I just ask you what you're working on now that you have completed this fantastic work?
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, I am actually, um, well, um, am emerging a little bit out of antiquity and moving to something that for me is modernity, which is the Middle Ages. Uh huh. Um, but I am continuing in the theme of memory, but this time memory in the historical sense. Okay. Uh, I am working on a translation into English of a book called *The Book of Memories*. Uh, which was compiled in the end of the 13th, beginning of the 14th century by a a Jewish merchant by the name of uh, Elazar Ben-Halevi of Worms. He was apparently a book merchant and uh, he was just going around and collecting lost Jewish books, uh, non-canonical books uh, that were otherwise lost. Some of them we don't know from any other source. And he was trying to create, we could call it like a Jewish universal history uh, to tell stories of how the world from its creation to his own time to the middle ages has evolved by collecting all of those lost stories. And uh, this is an incredible work. It's a work of love of one person who is painstakingly copying texts that would otherwise be lost and trying to collect memories Um, cultural memories of people from different times and make them into a continuous history. So it's a a wonderful work.
0: Fascinating. Uh, I can't wait to read it. And I should say that um, again, as a student of memory, I will be pestering you for early looks at the the manuscript. I'm available for, you know, advice should you need any.
1: This is a, I, I will be looking forward to sharing it. I'm just in the beginning, but it's yeah, it's very
0: exciting. It sounds fascinating. Well, uh, my guest today has been Professor Mira Baalberg. She's a professor of history and the David Goodlatten endowed Chair in Ancient Jewish Civilization at the University of California at San Diego. And we have been discussing her work, Fractured Tablets, Forgetfulness and Fallibility in Late Ancient Rabbinic Culture. Professor Balberg, it has been an honor and a privilege to speak with you about this book.
1: Likewise from thank you
0: thank you